You can become a direct patron of this podcast like our friends Brian Clark, Elliot Payne, and Gravity Fish. Go to patreon.com slash newdisruptors, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com, for more details. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a show that rolls for initiative. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. Find us at boingboing.net, where you can also find shows like Apps for Kids. This is a Boing Boing podcast about cool smartphone apps for kids and parents. It's hosted by Mark Frauenfelder and his 10-year-old daughter, Jane. Dan Shapiro created the game Robot Turtles out of scissors, clip art, and a printer to offer asymmetric play. Kids and adults can play together and both can enjoy the experience. He brought it to Kickstarter to sell a few hundred copies and wound up selling over 25,000. In his workshop, I visit Dan and he explains how the game developed, how the Kickstarter proceeded, and how he's finishing up its fulfillment. So, you know, we've been looking at the pieces of it, but um, tell me the scope. So what did you make here? What was the Kickstarter for? So the Kickstarter was for this game called Robot Turtles, which was something that started out as a bunch of clip art and doodling around on the living room table with my, at the time, four-year-old twins. And it was a weekend, and my wife was out of town, and we just wanted something, I wanted something fun to play with them that would be unique and different. And I hated kids' board games. Like, Candyland. Oh my gosh. Stab me in the eye with a spoon. It's, what is it? Mar- it's non-Markovian chain. Someone wrote an analysis of Candyland because it, you realize <laughs> after you start playing it, there's no strategy. You can't, it's no strategy. You're an automaton pushing pieces around, which is great for little kids. Yeah. Less interesting for our age. Yeah, I mean, the only thing it teaches you is taking turns and following rules. Exactly. Which is reasonable and a good start, but, oh, the pain. And then the other option is something like (laughs) Tic-Tac-Toe, where it's this subtle game to see if you can lose without your children noticing. Oh, my God. Right? Like, how can I throw... Because you're guaranteed to win if you you put your resources to the task. So, like, what else is there to do but lose subtly? And so, torn between these two extremes, I was like, well, I want to do something where I'm not doing the same thing as my kids because that's going to result in frustration for me or for them. I want to have some interaction where I'm doing something, they're doing something, we're doing something fun together, but each of us is playing our own role. And it turns out that what kids love to do more than anything else is boss around grown-ups. And so I'd had these ideas sort of floating around in my head, like what if you had a programming language that did not reduce to text? Not, nothing to do with kids. I was just sort of thinking of this notion. Um, I was thinking about what if you had a game where kids and grown-ups did things differently? I was thinking about at what age could I, I introduce my kids to Logo? Turtle graphics, right. the one of the first languages I learned on, but which requires you to read, which my kids couldn't yet. Um, and those all sort of came together with this idea of what if I was a computer, my kids were programmers, and they programmed me. And they did it with cards that had pictures and no words. And then, oh, well, we, you know, put it down on a table so we can keep track of what's going on. And this sort of evolved with some scissors and clip art and a printer into this sort of notion of a board game. Um, I was playing around. I thought, oh, maybe I'll do something with it. I looked at it. It came out as a dual single-player game. That is, each of my kids had a board, and they played on separate boards. Mm-hmm. And and I would take turns moving one versus the other. The reason it turned into a single board and a multiplayer game was because 
I thought it'd be fun to grab the domain robot turtle, but it wasn't available. Only robot <laughs> turtles was. So I guess I had to do multiplayer. <laughs> that was actually the forcing function to That's go from one perfect. to multiple, multiple players. But it's simplicity too. Board games rule by simplicity. Then only people need one set. You don't have to have two boards. Yep. And so forth. So I can't think of a successful board game that has two boards in it. I'm trying to think of any. I think they're all yeah. single board games. So so good happenstance of fate. But you were yep. thinking about this. You're conceiving of this as an asymmetrical game though which i'm trying to think of any examples like that where different players are playing or different parts are playing like sometimes you play against the game like the game right. has rules and you do something in the game's you know almost you know, even if it's an analog game it says you've done this activity this much more complicated thing uh happens and some bad video games can be like that too you do this yeah, thing and yeah going against, against the computer <clears throat> yeah so and so whether it's a you know, whether the computer is an analog sort of you're playing against an algorithm in the analog world or playing against the computer in a digital game that's, so I've never seen this where there's a human being involved as the asymmetric element. And actually, once once I kind of got into it, one of the things I drew inspiration from was um, Angry Birds. Yeah. The notion of there's a puzzle and there's a set of mechanics that you learn and you use to solve the puzzle. So the role becomes the parent as the dungeon master, mm-hmm. as the, the <laughs> implementer of the kids... Oh, of the great. kids' concepts. Yeah. So the parent creates the maze, the puzzle, the prop, starting very simple and then eventually growing more complicated. And the kids have the sort of double whammy. At first, they boss the parents around because when they put down a card, the parent has to move the pieces. And then when they win, they've sort of vicariously beaten the parent oh, that's by great. solving the maze. The catch is the kid almost generally always wins, always mm-hmm. beats the maze. And so it's this neat sort of dichotomy where it's the kid bossing around the parent, beating the parent's maze, and the parent gets to celebrate with them. That's like neat. you won, you get to do it, and it's so much fun. <laughs> like it actually, it actually came out to be this wonderful thing where my kids asked to play for it all the time, and we had other kids over, and they played for, it, and they wanted a copy, and that was where I said, well, maybe, maybe there's something here. Well, Dan, what's your, what was your job before this? Before you, <laughs> I don't even know that. I I had kind of a weird motley assortment of things. I. Um, I had a uh, the, the brief the, the brief history was um, five years at Microsoft, um, three years at a startup that was making um, a cell phone for teenagers that ran Linux mm-hmm. back before that was a good idea um, in in two thousand and one. Then uh, a year at Real Networks in the mm-hmm. casual games world, playing around with things like Bejeweled and all that sort of stuff. Uh, then I started a company called Antella, which was uh, cloud services for camera phones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ran that for about four and a half years. Started a company called Antella, which was comparison shopping for consumer electronics, <laughs> which Google bought. I spent two years at Google on the ads team. Mm-hmm. Took a leap. Now we're coming up to the present. Right. I took a leave of absence for the summer to finish a book that I've been working on. Got totally distracted with this board game. Spent the whole summer working on this and then quit to go full-time, finish the book and the board game and everything else. And that's where I am right now. That's hilarious. So mostly software, mostly digital things yeah. instead of digital I'm waving my fingers things. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I got my degree um, in engineering and did a lot of double E and mechanical and then promptly abandoned the real world for the world of bits. God, that's really interesting. So. Wow. Because this is, so this is one of the things that Kickstarter does for people, I think, is it's bridge technology. It's money that gives you a tool to teach yourself new skills that let you leap from one side to the other. So I know people who had never programmed who then wind up either learning or be, or hiring or developing and starting a program, you know, software company to fulfill part of what we're doing, or like you, where you have this, you know, you were working with your hands at one point, you go into the software world, now you've leapt back 
This was the bridge financing to get you into Adams That's exactly again. right. Yes, it was so much fun. I mean, the best thing about this and the thing that made this project, one of the things that made this project so rewarding is it's so much fun to learn about different businesses mm-hmm. and learning about the what's fundamentally the dead tree business, cardboard, printing, warehousing, shipping is fascinating. It was so much fun. The one thing that I would advise to anybody else who's, who's thinking about this is I front-loaded a lot of that learning. Yeah. So before I put the Kickstarter up, I knew who my manufacturer was. I knew what my unit cost was. I knew how I was shipping. I knew how I was doing fulfillment. There were still 100 surprises by the time I got into it. But I, I've talked to so many Kickstarters that were like, oh, I just thought international shipping would be $15. Oh, my gosh. Or, oh, I just figured I'd ship it out of my garage. And then we're destroyed by the onslaught of you know people who love their project. Um, fortunately I didn't have that problem. I I did all my learning up front, all my design up front, and then it was just actually executing it that (laughs) has taken me since then. The planning, because I talked to Dean, your friend, your friend of mine, Dean Putney. uh, Who said to say hello, by the way. Well, hello, Dean. He's such a great guy. And uh, so I talked to him for a podcast a few weeks ago, I guess, uh, on the the podcast broadcasting scale and uh, in in real time. And uh, Dean did, uh, I'll put notes uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes, but he did a book uh, essentially... A reproduction of an album of his great grandfather's World War One trenches photos from the German side, and um, one of the things he told me is he said that you guys spent like a year brainstorming about Kickstarter that you had endless, endless that like your degree in Kickstarter was you guys <laughs> shooting the ball for an enormous amount of time before you launched. That he launched in September, you launched in October, right? Mm-hmm. And his Kickstarter he was set out to do about fifty grand because of the printing costs. Came in at, I think, 118, somewhere yeah, in that range. Yeah, who else raises $100,000 to print their family photo album? And the book's oh 65 to $79, too. I, I mean, it wasn't cheap. Like, he was great proof of concept for the Kickstarter I did, because I thought, oh, this is an esoteric item, and he figured out how to crack the code to get enough people interested. And he got good publicity, Dean, is, and he's got a, a good forums to post things in between his understanding of Reddit and his involvement in Boing Boing. So that's all, you know, you sometimes think, is that too much of a special case? But no, right? Like... Now you've seen duplications of that. And then you came in in October, and you were looking for $25,000 because yep. that would let you fund you know, some run of board games or you'd print more and use the money to print more. And, and truthfully, it would have – no. I mean really it was just about finding a home for the print run. Mm-hmm. I did not want 1,000 copies in my garage. So You, you were, can see my garage is already pretty full. We're it is my full. garage. It is full. <laughs> but it's so, and it's not full of games. And things it's not full. I'm not looking at pallets of games. But so the 25000 you really wanted to say like I'm just going to do a run of 1,000. This will cover 100% of the cost. I've done it. This is great. So that would have been okay. It wouldn't with have even covered 100 percent of the cost. Mm-hmm. I would have been happy to write a small check to cover delivering right. this into the world and seeing it happen. That's I would have been great. delighted to raise 25k, write a 5k check, and which which is about what it would have come out to, mm-hmm. um, and then say, "Great, it's done." But all right. these games have a home. That was right. the key thing. I right. want to find a home for the thousand well, then, and so right. And then someone might come and say, "We really like this game. Can we license it and produce it?" There might have been things, but that wasn't so. That's wasn't even on my radar. That's great. So this was a labor of love. This is the purest expression. You spent so much time. How do we do this? How do we get interest? Twenty-five grand. That's a great goal. Okay, you know, I'll be in the hole. That's fine. This is a great way. I want to spend my time. How you I, you know, it. I'm usually somebody who's working an angle or who's got yeah. an approach or like, oh, maybe this could turn into something. This is probably the first time I ever said, nope. I'm just going to take a summer. I'm going to do something I'm excited about that I love. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. I'll be a little sad. And if it works, great. But like works to me was mm-hmm. I deliver this to a home. I right. really had like my secret upside was maybe I'm going to raise $100,000 and get to print 
five thousand copies. But you, and you've done all the planning. So when you came, so as the, at the point you hit the Kickstarter, like you actually knew at, at the scale you were hoping how to fulfill it. Like this is it. This is the goal. You had printers range. You say you had budgets. You had printers. You knew what you were getting into, and most of it would be handing this off to people who were experts in producing board games, right? And and fulfillment and shipping. So you'd have a you know a big role, but most of the work would be handled by other people. So. The most terrible, wonderful thing happened. How much money did you raise in the campaign? Uh, 630000 and change. Right. And sometimes that destroys people when that happens. What happened when you yeah. see the numbers ticking up? Are you, were you like, all right? Or was it, oh, no? So I was really lucky. When I think about it, there's three ways to produce things. There's the, the craft way, which is like I'm going to you know, have a local printer do it. I'm going to put them in my garage and I'm going to package them up by hand. There's the mass production for, you know, for a company way, which is I'm going to order 100,000 copies and I'm going to have distributors and everything else. And I targeted kind of a middle ground where it was all professionals along the way. It tended to be a la carte and small order sizes and everything else. But I offhandedly asked everybody, hey, look, I mean, if it happens that I've got 10,000 units, like, you know, crazy world, can you handle that? And they're like, yeah, we can, you know, we can do up to 50,000 units. That's fine. And I was like, okay, I, like, I don't want to get your hopes up or anything, but right. just, just so that's out of the way. So I was kind of in that middle zone where I was at the, I was the smallest that I could have used that fulfillment pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, I planned for only the minimum order that all these folks did, but these were all things, these are all fulfillment patterns that could scale. So when it turned out that it was 25,000 copies that I had to order and ship and everything else... I could scale up what I'd already planned for yeah. rather than having to scrap all my plans and redo them, which is what happens to a lot of Kickstarters that hit bigger than they than they thought. Let's talk about that in terms of mass production of printed goods because I think that's that thing. That's actually a wonderful point. That's what Dean came in at too, which is – and that's yep. what I'm doing with the book uh, for uh, the magazine is that uh, is that – you hope for some level, but if you're 10x or maybe 25 or 50x, you're probably still okay because unless you picked somebody who's way too small. And now I know with some uh, other kinds of products, like printed material, anything that can be mass produced where the process is identical and usually almost entirely automated, the scale number for any given producer can go up. The folks who made Glyph, I remember this distinctly from one of their early stories. You know, they were one of the big Kickstarter successes in the early days. Was they thought they were going to use a very short run injection molding, but that method only really works when you're at 500 units. When you get up to 5,000, it's another thing. When you get up to 50,000, it's another thing. When you get up above, and then you're starting to buy more and more tooling and more and more overhead and yep. whatever, but you can't just say, you can't flip a switch there because the place that can do 500 units, it would take them 50 times as long to do 10 times as many, not you know 10 times as long. Exactly. So you're right. With printed goods, it's an advantage because once you get out of print-on-demand, then most of the providers can handle a reasonable spectrum of outcomes. Right. So if you're predicting like 500 copies of a book, you might go print on demand and the quality would be good, and, and, but every unit's going to cost you about the same if it's 500 or 250 of overhead outside of it for design or whatever. But you go on press and they just turn the, hit the button, two, you know, 500. Yeah. How long should I hold down the button? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it spits them out. But right, but then you get a big increase in cost but, and also uh, uh, advantages of scale. A reduction of cost of scale the more you print when you go to these mass-produced methods. Exactly. So then the question becomes, if it looks like you're going to be bigger than you thought, 
do you want to <laughs> redo everything and try and cost optimize? Like yeah. I could have saved some incremental dollars by going to China and by, you know, starting from scratch with a, a large order and everything else. Um, but I, I didn't even seriously consider that. Um, first off, because I was more concerned with delivering things on time um, to the backers and doing right by them than by squeezing a little a few extra dollars out of it. Second, because the manufacturers were fantastic and were there through the whole process. When I was a tiny little gnat, <laughs> up until yeah. when I was a significant part of their, you know, a part of their business plan, maybe not business plan, but a non-trivial number of right. dollars for them, um, they were there the whole time and they'd worked and they were ready to go. So, you know, it just didn't make sense for me to scrap everything, try and find a new producer, yeah. try and figure out quality again and, and everything else when I had somebody who could do that and who could scale all the way. That's so precious. This is the interesting thing about a pre-order situation too, is essentially in your case, it was, it was um, I know Kickstarter likes to say we're not a store, and which is true, but some things align more closely with the pre-order or not. And yours aligned as does like the book I was working on and, and mm-hmm. uh, Dean's as well. Much more like a pre-order. Like, look, we're, we really know how to do this. We're, we're printing a thing. We have competent people in the back end. This is something people do. We're not inventing a new process. We're not creating new electronics. Right. We're making something. We're producing something and people do this a billion times a day already. So there's a little more confidence. But at the same time, you get all the money up front. So you're, you estimate your cost is going to be $7 a unit and it works out to be six ninety five or seven oh five. but you've received 100% of the money. So if you went to China, maybe it would be $4 a unit but three months more shipping. Mm-hmm. But you've already gotten paid and mm-hmm. you already know the manufacturer. It didn't seem like you have to make a new decision because you have the money on hand. You're not worried prospectively. You're not like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to sell these 100,000 copies. So at $3 a piece... That's less of a risk than $7. So even if I have to wait, I should do it, get it in the stores, and then we'll see what sells. You didn't have that risk exposure. Yeah, and the other thing is, I mean, anytime you go in and revisit those plans, you're creating a bunch of risk around the project, right? Like, so, okay, I, I decide I'm going to go to China. That means I'm going to delay everything by a bunch of months. First, to go vet the folks. Second, to go and run through the production cycle. Third, to get them shipped on the slow boat back. Right. Um, then I create a whole bunch of risk around shipping because it's harder to manage customs and everything else through that whole process. I mean, at the end of the day, you can get greedy and you can try and squeeze the last drop out, but you're doing it at the expense of the people who backed you. So, you know, the way I think about it is if you're doing the Kickstarter to learn, then you want to be upfront about that. Mm-hmm. And you want to say, you know, you are helping to fund the growth and development of this new thing. If you're doing the Kickstarter because you want to know if it, because you've built something and you want to get it into people's hands, then you owe it to them to optimize for that, to optimize for getting it into people's hands, right. not for trying to make the most money and be the most efficient possible. And that's where I was at. I, I had this thing I want to get to people. You can always go back later and do it too. It's like if it turns out like this is, you know, this you've proved that this is a game people want. Uh, I should ask too, do you have game makers coming to you interested in it? Is that Oh my gosh, I've up? had a ton of interest <clears throat> right now. Um, uh, my entire focus is on fulfilling all the obligations that I've had. Right. Um, I sold a, I have a little bit of extra inventory that's at buy.robotturtles.com mm-hmm. um, that I'm selling off from the Kickstarter campaign. That's almost gone. Um, I think there's 700 copies left of the 25,000 I printed. Oh my gosh, that's um, great. And I'm probably going to cut it at 500 so I can keep some. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, but, my primary focus right now is on finishing up everything, which includes a few, you know, lost in, in shipping and, and making making things right that went wrong and finishing up the last major reward, which is the laser edition that I sold 72 of. Let's take a break so I can thank Media Temple, one of this week's sponsors. And I've got a coupon code for you if you listen to the end of this bit. 
For years, Media Temple's grid service has been the web hosting choice for more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. And that's because a single grid account can host anything from your portfolio to a hundred different client projects. The grid is ready for anything. Hundreds of servers are working together in the cloud to keep your sites online, even if you suddenly hit the front page of Reddit or another popular site. You get a hundred gigabytes of storage. You get a terabyte of data transfer per month. You can handle Reddit. You can handle anything. And it's all managed through their simple custom control panel. It's backed by Media Temple's famous 24 by 7 live support. So you can help when you need it. Virtual private server solutions are also available with two other plans, with DV Developer and DV Managed Hosting. So if you need that level of service, they've got that too. Now, for New Disruptors listeners, you can use the promo code TND. That's TND, like the New Disruptors. If you go to mediatemple.net and you get 25% off your first month of web hosting. That's TND as a promo code at mediatemple.net. Thanks to Media Temple, and now back to the podcast. Here's the thing I wanted to mention: is uh, this extraordinary thing? Your campaign finished on Halloween or thereabouts? What was it? it was October twenty seventh, I think, right Wait. before Halloween. Oh yeah, so you so that's not that long ago. Uh, you shipped out all of your stuff right away, right? How fast did it go from the Kickstarter? I mean, so you must have hit a button during the Kickstarter campaign. Oh, so you waited. You had your finger poised the day on the it order, closed. and you said twenty five thousand. Boom! I, I did a la- actually did a last minute negotiation with the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, once I had the final volume, I said, "Okay, now I've got the real number. What kind of discount can you give me?" Since it's, I mean, I, they they were following along, yeah, but, yeah. And we did a little bit of last minute, but no, it was um, it closed on a Friday, and we said go on Monday. And um, then some frantic FedEx. I've never spent so much on shipping in my life, but yeah. we had to send proofs back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And they're and huge proofs, right? They're, they're huge proofs. And for some there. reason, they need you to send them back. I don't understand this. You There's sign a, them and physically ship them back. It's like signing a contract, though. You know, did you watch Elf, the movie Elf? Yes. Do you remember the bit where yes. James Caan, the proof, the printer comes in and says, they're missing pages there, and then later it comes back to haunt him because he signed off on the proof. Yes. And his, and the boss is like, I see your signature on these blank pages. It's a contract. But you yep. said proof back. They wanted a hand because when you say, you printed a million units wrong, they're like, yeah, it's right this here. This <laughs> We got it right here. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Because you were sitting back. So I'm looking at this box over here. Were they sitting sheets? They are sitting rolls that size? Yeah, I actually the... have the first roll of rejected proofs, mm-hmm. which was a small, trivial thing, but um, kept those for posterity. Uh, and then I was like, but these card sheets are awesome. Can you pull some and send yeah. them to me? <laughs> did you not go on press? You decided not to fly out? I really not... wanted to. It's we really wound hard. up, my wife broke her ankle, so mm-hmm. travel got a lot more difficult, yeah. but um, otherwise I would have been there. Yeah, and It's twins. really hard. I'm, I don't think I'm going to be able, I don't know, we haven't decided on the printer. We had a printer picked for our book, and because our quantities are low, we're going to do like in the 1500 range, which is pretty small. We found a printer we liked for a soft cover. Uh, and we asked them to give us hardcover bids, and while we were working on it, launched the campaign. We feel pretty good about the numbers, but we're not happy with their quality for hardcover. So mm. we're at, we're shopping around now. We have time because our quantity again is so low. We have the entire month of February to print, basically. Yeah. So we're, you know we'll, we can hit our um, as a, I think this will air you know near the end of January, so you'll can check the show notes to see how frantic I am at that <laughs> point. But um, yep. but we have you know entire month to print, and this quantity is very low. So we're working for find uh, hardcover printers more accustomed to printing. You know, what they call trade hardcover books, but for our quantities, like I don't think I'll go on press because they're going to do it at 
if we're if we're really lucky, they'll do it during the daytime. But it'll probably be at three a.m. in Indiana somewhere in some suburb of Indiana. And I'm not even kidding. Like that's there's tons of printers. No, actually, around. my manuals. I believe the manuals were done in Indiana. Absolutely. The boards were done in in Michigan. I don't know why. It's like yeah, there's Michigan, Indiana, Illinois. There's a huge amount of old industry. There's a lot of printers there too, North Carolina, and that's where the printers are. So yeah, so going on press is super fun, but it's also the most frantic, horrible thing. And they're sitting there. And depending on the kind of press, if it's a web press, the paper's zooming out. Like, they're shooting it, and they're like, you have to sign off of this because 4,000 pages just went by. And you're like, okay, okay. And then you sign off, and they make the change. And as opposed to sh- you're doing sheet fed, which is slightly – they turn the machine off. They stop feeding <laughs> sheets. But, but all this said, so you signed – so you got the discount. You said go. That was – you're saying like a, you're, you know, all the stuff going back and forth. So this is early – like late October still – into early November. Uh, I'm overnighting giant cardboard mm-hmm. tubes at 150 bucks a pop oh with God. FedEx to get right. these things in time because, you know, every day is a day-for-day delay in in backers receiving their, their games. And the one thing I really wanted to do was to hit – was to have everybody in the U.S. and as many people internationally as possible to get it in time for Christmas. Oh, that's amazing. That was – that was the goal, and it was really hard. It was terrible because Hanukkah was so early this year. It oh, was like, it's the earliest it is like ever, right? Isn't yeah. it pretty much? In the, like, yeah, in, in, in like all of human history. Years. Yeah, it's the earliest it's ever been. <laughs> this might as well be Easter. It's like, no, right. it's, it's like, it's November what? You're, come on. Yep. Okay. So how well did you hit the target then? You wanted to get stuff in people's hands in America by Christmas. When did the stuff get shipped out? So the print, And did your printer handle, or the games manufacturer, did they handle... Uh, shipping to, or do they have to hand off to another group? Let's see. They arranged for the semi trucks. There yeah. were three of them. Oh it was about uh, thirty-six tons of games. Yay! Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, to uh, to to roll to all the various folks. So um, uh, two and a half semi truck loads went to an Amazon warehouse for U.S. shipping. And half a uh, half a semi truck went to uh, a uh, a different warehouse that was doing international. So I used Amazon multi channel uh, fulfillment um, for domestic, and then I used Fulfillrite, who's been just incredibly terrific for uh, for international. And Delano Services is the printer I used, so they arranged for all the all That's the freight. Great. So we went, and Amazon has offices, has, uh, different warehouses, different places. So you didn't have to exactly uh, ship to some regional place that they handle. They worked it out so that I shipped to one place and then they pushed it out to all their you different didn't have warehouses. To do it. That's so great. Yeah. So this is I've been hearing more about Amazon fulfillment lately, and it used to be uh, Amazon had a much more limited set of services, and they've expanded into logistics and and UPS used to be kind of one of the only players in that space, and you'd have to ship it to Ohio. That was years ago, and now, so it's become much more complicated than I'm familiar with. What did um, Amazon uh, do for you? Because they were shipping to your already ordered customers, but they do other things as well. Yeah, so what I used was their multi-channel fulfillment, which is designed for them to warehouse it and ship both to people who buy on Amazon and people who buy through other channels. I just didn't sell through Amazon. I only sold through... (laughs) So uh, it was a little unusual, and... They're still working out some of the kinks for it. If anyone else is planning to try this, I would say, you know, ship them 20 empty cardboard boxes and have them ship them (laughs) back to you and figure out how it works and sort of, you know, iron out the kinks. Um, because you were sending them a spreadsheet or a database or something. You had a, you had a, I don't know if they have an API for this, but you shipped them a ton of addresses. I literally of uploaded a spreadsheet, yeah. crossed my fingers, 
and then boxes with hit send, and that was yeah, exactly. What does it cost per unit for something? And your thing is what is like eighteen. Yeah, they actually have an online calculator, so you can go through and figure out exactly what it's going to cost. And you had no warehousing costs because they weren't holding it for very long. It went in and out, so you didn't have monthly costs. Yep, and and the monthly costs aren't terrible as Mm -hmm. long as you keep turnover. They they get on your case if you leave stuff in there forever, but um. Uh, but it wound up to ship my box out cost about seven dollars via Amazon. Seven dollars a unit. Yeah, that seems is that high or low? Like, um, I know it's, there's both sides. So right? the, yeah, it depends on how you look at it. So it costs that was um, that's uh, about uh, equal manufacturing cost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so from that perspective, it's really high. Um, but it was about two thirds of what it would cost if I went to the local post office and shipped mm-hmm. it myself. So from that perspective, it's really low. Because you sent everything first class, then uh, I sent it UPS. Amazon class, so which means they, they decide how it goes. Yeah, it's five to seven days is what they say. A lot of folks got it faster yeah. than that. Um, they use a mix of FedEx and UPS and SmartPost, which mm-hmm. SmartPost is like the UPS it to the post office, and the post office right. delivers it. It reduces cost, right? There's a logistics cost there, and they, yep. do they deliver any themselves? You don't know. I mean, Honestly, you, I know Seattle. how they deliver it by the complaints <laughs> I get that says laser ship didn't deliver my thing, and I'm like, I'm really, really sorry. Know. So, like, but, they, but do they, so they communicate with the users. Users can log into an account or see the. Status. They get a tracking number. That's great, and then and they track off it goes. Yep. This is very interesting. This is, I mean, this is this whole world of physical shipping. Like, like oh, Amazon yeah. is trying to reduce the irreducible, which is that physical shipping and physical tracking is such a pain, but they're trying to give us the tools and not the only player. People have so many different feelings about Amazon as a company because they're, you know, this marauding behemoth, they're destroying this, they're enabling this, they're a web services company. And then like you're dealing with this division that essentially is like a shipping logistics company that has multiple providers like UPS or USPS, but they're like another UPS to you, but they're just handling this for you. But they are special and weird. So, I mean, the great part (laughs) is like you get these, you know, nice clean interface and Mm -hmm. you, I mean, it's, it's sometimes hard to figure out, but there's this straightforward interface and really great cost structure. Mm -hmm. The hard part is if something goes wrong, it can be really challenging to figure out what went wrong. And sometimes the, the you know, totally independent shipping logistics thing gets a little right. tied up with the main thing. So at some point, like I got – this was actually when I was um, – uh, what happened? Oh, at some point, they turned off all my shipping because um, I hadn't filled out some sort of form and I oh, converted right. from one, you know, one class to another class and yes. hadn't done something I needed to do. And it was like – Boop, it's off. I got some automated mail. Oh, because you have to fill out, you have to file forms with the post office through them? No, or? this was, I think this was a tax form that I hadn't done. Um, now, I, I found somebody so at Amazon who'd reached out because of the Kickstarter and was helpful in getting it resolved. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. Um, I could have done it myself. It would have taken a little longer if I'd had to figure it out myself. Um, so I found them relatively easy to work with, but uh, but it's definitely a different challenge than like Fulfillrite, which is amazing, like fantastic service. There's a guy there. If you work with Fulfillrite, you have a sales rep, and basically any time, day or night, give or take a few hours, they're going to help you figure out whatever the problem is yeah. and, and get it sorted, which is just fantastic. So for international shipping, that's just been tremendous. I'm going to keep that in mind. I have of I Kickstarter, so I'm curious what the percentage split was. How many did you have to ship uh, internationally? So I... Uh, I didn't optimize as much for international as I could have. Mm-hmm. It was more expensive. Right. And, and, and there was some stuff I could have done, like shipping to international warehouses and then shipping right. locally out of those that, that that could have lowered that cost more. But I just didn't have the bandwidth. This was all a one-man show. Right. So I didn't have the bandwidth to do it. Um, so I wound up with relatively low. I think it was 15% international. Uh, but that was st- – well, I can tell you it was about 2,000 copies. 
So, um, so yeah, it was about 10%, about 10% international. Mm -hmm. And um, you, had to, you had to put a high uh, surcharge on for international and you had one rate for that. Was that part of why you needed to optimize? Unfortunately, yeah, that's the other trick is um, uh, Kickstarter supports the notion of an increased cost for international, yeah. but they don't let you do it by region. So Canada and Cambodia, I had to charge the same, which meant too. people were very upset. You could make a Canada reward level conceivably, yeah. which some people do, but then that becomes like how much of your time do you spend managing people who bid a place on the Canadian one and then you have to get more money from them or they pay too much. And it's confusing. Yeah. At the end of the day, I wanted to, I mean, like, you know, do one thing and do it well. I wanted right. to optimize for something. Right. And it could be optimizing for international or it could be optimizing for domestic. I decided I was going to optimize for domestic and then make it available via international as best I could with the time I had available. But if I'd had 20 different reward tiers for Canada, Cambodia, this, that, right. and the other add-ons, it would have confused folks who, the, the, the domestic market, which I thought was really the best the best place to focus. And who knows whether that's true or not. It wound up being self-fulfilling. Right. <laughs> 90% of the folks came from the U.S. That said, I had 65 countries represented. And it's that's even it, and it's been translated. Uh, the backers actually volunteered to translate into, oh gosh, I think like 50 different languages, including oh, there's a really thoughtful, so there's a huge argument in the Danish translation, which was hilarious for me to try and follow with Google Translate. Uh, somebody translated into, I can't remember the name of it cause I had to look it up, but it's a language that I believe are spoken by Inuit people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they could use it in schools that were teaching, uh, Inuit kids. So these downloadable PDFs from the, it's site. all downloadable yeah, from so the site. You printed, you printed an English version and yep. anybody wants the, the, the localized versions can download. They go to robotturtles.com slash instructions and there's links That's to great. everything. Um, I think I even have somebody doing a Yiddish translation. This is what's fun too is uh, way back uh, a year ago when I was talking to the folks at Indie Game, the movie, they want to do subtitles and they don't have the money for it. I mean, even with the amount of money they've raised over the years, it's like, it's just too expensive and they got uh, people just volunteered. I don't even know if they asked people started volunteering. I think they have 20 or 25 languages. So you can download subtitled versions Without and so it's this wonderful, generous thing. It's like you're a for-profit organization. I'm a for-profit with the magazine, but there's only so much I can do, and there's only so much you can do. And like we're not trying to cheat anybody out of money, but there's that volunteer economy where like people translating this maybe it helps sell more copies, but you're not optimizing towards sales. You had a fixed number. You already sold essentially what you're going to sell at this point, and the future is different. Yep. So the fact that people volunteer to make the game more useful is a net addition, it seems to be, to culture, not to your bottom line. I think so. I don't think I sold significant numbers of extra copies because people mm -hmm. said they were going to translate it. I let my backers know that that was happening, and yeah. I think I added something at the bottom of my Kickstarter campaign, which had, like, hit the limit for number of words in a Kickstarter no, campaign. No, no. So it was way uh, down no, no. there that it was available. Um, I don't think that really drove sales, mm -hmm. but it sure is awesome for the people who are who are buying this and who can use it. Mm -hmm. It was also neat because very much by design, the game doesn't have any words in it. Besides the logo and mm -hmm. the instruction manual, there's nothing. The word push will be on the premium special yes. edition, but that's it. We can make uh, out the word push. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it might just be a pair of handprints. We'll see. You, um, well, you, but it was yeah. it was designed with that in mind, that whether it was pre-readers or people in other countries, that you didn't need to use a lot of language around this, and mm -hmm. I didn't want to. That's great. And the, uh, you and Dean are also the poster children for like getting stuff out on time. I mean, serious, because <laughs> Kickstarter has such yeah. a reputation of as a thing like... People always underestimate. You spent so much. I, mean, I, I don't want to, I guess, overestimate or underestimate. You had you guys spent so much time planning, and I will argue that uh, I learned from listening to Dean. I tried to plan 
quite a bit. I had almost everything nailed down before I went to the campaign. Even then, it was like, oh, this T-shirt we wanted to do, which wound up being a big, not, not a, not a uh, you know, 20% part of the campaign, but the T-shirt wound up being a significant part of the campaign in the end in terms of getting over the goal. So, mm-hmm. you know, we added that as the campaign started and that confused people. But having as much, uh, as many uh, details as possible, your range of costs, things nailed down, you knew how you're going to fulfill. So you were sort of waiting to push the button instead of, okay, we're done. How do we do this? Mm-hmm. That's a very different I, I'll approach. I'll tell you a story of my formative years, and suddenly some stuff with the Laser Special Edition will kick it, <laughs> click into place. I actually put myself through college uh, running a uh, DJ and laser show business. Really? And my friend Jeremy Plunkett and I uh, built our own laser shows, built our own speakers, and then did DJing for hire at live parties. And uh, I took this class called Manufacturing and Metallurgy. Amazing course, Professor Joe King at uh, Harvey Mudd College. And the final project was you had to make 10 somethings. No specifications to what. You had to show it to the professor and he'd go, yep, that's sufficient complexity, whatever it is. We had people machining aluminum nunchucks. We had people um, publishing books. We had, but just 10 of something. And what's interesting is that 10 is just over the threshold where every incremental thing you do is a giant pain in the neck. Because <laughs> when you're one-offing something, saying, oh, and then I'm going to sand it, and it's going to take 15 minutes, isn't a big deal. But when there's 10-somethings, it's going to take 150 minutes. And that is a big deal. And so suddenly, everything you do gets multiplied by a, non, a non-trivial number, and you have to think about it. And the one thing that just kept going through my head as I went through every part of this campaign was the hell I went through trying to deliver my late 10 laser shows, which was my manufacturing and metallurgy project, um, was was trying to deliver those and remembering that multiplier. And that's what trips people up, which is you just can't plan on doing stuff by hand. You have to – if you you have any reasonable quantity of what you're doing whatsoever, you've got to be able to say, okay, how how can I do something once and then have it replicate a bunch of times? Um, and so that was where all the planning ahead of time came from. There were so many points where I was like, oh, and then like, I'll just assemble the pieces into boxes because no times a thousand can't do that. Oh, I'll just put those in my garage. Nope. Times a thousand can't do that. And that, that experience was just always in the back of my head that doing things at any kind of scale is different than doing them one off. And, and I think folks who have experiences makers, that's the one place where they fall down is that they think like makers, which is how can I build this? Not like producers, which is how can I build this repeatably? So that's where I was like, okay, I've got to get this all lined up. I've got to get this all planned. Can't save things for the last minute. And and on the flip side, by the way, oh, it's going to cost me, um, you know, twenty dollars to ship internationally instead of ten dollars. Right. That's another thing that when you multiply by right. a thousand, really blows up in your face. I've heard. I mean, this is a fascinating thing because I've heard from so many people who do crowdfunding campaigns where they. The one thing they didn't think of that people would either – they wouldn't think there was uptake. They didn't put a limit or they didn't think there would be uptake or they didn't work through the um, – uh, what do you call it? The, if they weren't efficiency experts, they didn't work through the uh, the steps it would take to produce something. So there's people like I didn't think about how long it would take to sign 450 of whatever. And then they did and they're like, oh my god, I spent you know 10 days signing things because we had to get the thing and pull it out and put it in, and then and then we had to hand address all of those. Everything else went through the fulfillment house. So, or you know, um, uh, Amanda Palmer, who had the her yeah, most yeah. of her campaign, most of the money went to really clearly defined expense that belonged to other people, paying the band, paying mm-hmm. the cost for studio, paying whatever, right? Or you know, sets being constructed by the people. But then a hundred hand painted record players was one of her rewards. Oh. 
And that sold out. Of course, who's not going to, if you're a Man of Palmer fan, a hundred, a record player, a hundred, whatever, of course I'm going to do that. And it was a relatively small amount of money in the campaign. But, you know, she's posting photos of spending like a week or something working on these. Let's pause for a moment so I can thank Audible for its support of The New Disruptors. Audible is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. I'm sure you've heard about them before, but we've got a special offer that's exclusively for our listeners I'll tell you about in just a second. Audible offers 150,000 books and covers virtually every genre. If you want to listen to a book, Audible has it. You can listen to books anytime, anywhere, including on an iPhone, an iPad, a Mac, PC, a Kindle, And here's the best part. Audible is offering New Disruptors listeners a free audiobook along with a 30-day free trial. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors to take advantage of this special offer. By doing so, you not only get the chance to check out a great service, you're supporting the New Disruptors as well. Let me give you a recommendation of a book that I read this last year that I, I really liked. It's called The Writing on the Wall. It's a book about the history of social media the first 2,000 years. Writer Tom Standage, an editor at The Economist and a friend of mine, he wrote a book in which he traces back to Roman times the origins of the kinds of things we think we invented in the last few years. He's found early Facebooks and Twitters. You'd be surprised. And the book is narrated by veteran narrator Simon Vance. It's beautiful to listen to as well. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors, search for Writing on the Wall, Download that as your free book, get a 30-day free trial, and help support our show. And now back to the podcast. I had one, I actually had two cases like that in this yes. campaign. One of them was the laser edition, and the, the, the piece that threw me was near, uh, I added as stretch goals some extra pieces to the game, like the crates mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that you can push around, um, which are really cool, and I planned the heck out of those because, you know, the multiplier by however many thousand made sure the cost can handle everything else. I didn't realize that by increasing the parts count of the game 50%, I had to increase the parts count of the laser edition by 50%, oh. which directly increasing the parts count of the game by 50% increased the manufacturing cost by 5 or 10%. Right. But doing the laser edition by 50% means 50% more time on the laser. <laughs> so that one got me, which is part of the reason why this is a, a, the laser thing's a project. Oh, this is mass production versus... This is, because the laser cutter... A laser engraver is a um, is a, a craft item because right? mm-hmm. you're doing one. It's like wood burning. You do it one at a time. Yeah. You don't get the benefits of scale from this. Everything takes the same amount of time to do. Exactly. Every piece takes the yes. same. So I I wound up giving fifty percent more laser time for the same cost. Right. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was, and this is so silly. I had this <laughs> thank you tier, which came with a thank you letter, um, which I had some trouble getting out on time. It, it came out, but it came out after the game. It should have been before. Mm-hmm. Um, it came with a thank you letter. It came with a, some other. Uh, came with this really cool ebook. Um, There's full color uh, pictures from the um, uh, from the Robot Turtles universe, um, and a thank you in the manual. And my plan was to have a thank oh, you page that yeah. had like you know twenty five or yeah. fifty thank you names. I had to fit seven hundred names into the manual. People really wanted to. Wanted to say thank you. <laughs> well, I just didn't realize every everything was twenty five times bigger than I yeah, thought it yeah. was going to be, and that was the one part that didn't scale. So I wound up doubling the size of the manual. And if you look in the manual, I, I'm really happy with the way it came out. But um, there's eight pages of the instructions and you know tips for yeah. parents and everything else, and then eight pages of these full color plates. The first one is one of the turtles looking at a Commodore 64 monitor. And there in four columns is a bunch of names of backers. And then the next one is a t- one of the turtles on a typewriter. And they're typing up 
four columns of backer names. Oh, and so, so I'm writing on a chalkboard. Yeah. And so, so it became a piece of art that yeah. kind of went into the manual and uh, everybody got to pick their favorite turtle uh, it, at the thank you tier who, yeah. who sent them the thank you letter. And that's also the turtle whose page they appear on. And they're all alphabetized. So, people go, so it was really fun. We wound up taking a ton of time to figure out that's how to so do funny it. funny of all the things. And then drove some cost of the game because every single copy of the game has this in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but that was the other one that was sort of unexpected. But managed to deal with it. You know what got me? is um, one of the tiers for my Kickstarter was a year subscription to the magazine. Yeah. We're an electronic publication. Mm-hmm. We have a database of subscribers. And we didn't have a, like a gift or a complimentary issue or whatever functionality built in. I knew how to do it. I knew the yeah. system on PHP. Pro- I was on a PHP program before I bought the magazine. I did some. I am now a PHP program. I was a, <laughs> per- I was a Perl guy. All the Perl knowledge is yep. almost gone into yep. my head. But uh, so the Kickstarter campaign ended December 19th. Um, I had to fulfill some hundreds of subscriptions for people because they bought it as part of packages or add-ons, and I wanted to get it to them before Christmas Day because I thought if they want to give it as a gift, they're getting a code and they can give it as a gift. I dramatically underestimated two things. First was uh, how much integration it would require in my existing system, which I understood to make it work right and elegantly. I wanted it to work well. I didn't want it to be a stapled on thing. Yep. So instead of being a day of programming, it was three days of programming. The second was Kickstarter... Results. So we should talk about that because this is incredible. I'm actually going to talk to a company that does. Um, uh, it's founded by uh, one of the guys involved, Diaspora. Mm-hmm. They, they were talking to him soon, where they uh, do help backend fulfillment, like getting the stuff out of Kickstarter and turning oh, yeah. into useful data. Uh, backer kit. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I'm going to talk to them soon. But the this is this huge problem that people don't talk about as much is. Kickstarter's survey thing is terrible, right? Oh, I mean, yes. I love Kickstarter. They've taken most of the friction to everything. This piece is the worst piece. It's a disaster. And you don't know about it until you hit it. Mm-hmm. So how did, you know, so you're a programmer. So you could deal with that. I'm a programmer. I'm a terrible programmer. Oh, I'm, I sorry, I'm, a ter- I'm a terrible I can write code, <laughs> but one. if I'm writing code, something's gone horribly awry. Well, this is, so three <laughs> days, so it took me three days instead of one to do the yep. programming. And I'm like, okay, well, I started on the 18th. It was over on the 19th that all this stuff to do. I finished like on the week. My life was very understanding. It's before Christmas. Yep. We celebrate Hanukkah and Christmas. So that's cool. So I wind up working into the weekend. I get the code programming done. Then I start working with the survey results from Kickstarter. And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't think. It. So I spent probably three days being able to take the results out, deal with all the questions, integrate it in my database, and then be able to produce an automated email to people with their code and give them an account page. They can look it up, all that stuff. So probably six days of programming. I thought it'd be a day and a half. So the, so how did you deal with the stuff? Can I show you? Surveys? Yes. Let's get up and let's we'll do, do let's do walk and talk. Here. It's That's now not my product. We're now a Robert Altman film. Yes. A good friend of mine is a guy named Joe Heitzberg and he created a Kickstarter called Poppy. Have you seen the Poppy? Yes. Is that the lamp? No. No. This is... Thinking of the... Uh, this is... It turns your iPhone into a 3D oh. camera and viewer. Converts into a Viewmaster that can record. That's beautiful. So it's super awesome. He had a great yeah. Kickstarter, 200K raised. Um, he, uh, along with Dean, was one of my other... I, I had three uh, three geniuses helping me. Dean was one. <laughs> Joe's another. And um, Brad, uh, who created Story Wars, yes. uh, was the third. Yes. And... Um, and so Poppy is this fantastic thing, and Joe created a product that's currently in closed beta that uh, helped him manage this, and I used it as well. It's called Kick Mailer, and it manages backer information and email, and it was oh absolutely invaluable. And he's going to release the Kickstarter a, file. He's going to release this as a product at some point, or no? You don't know. I think so. Okay. And in the meantime, yeah. uh, your listeners can send him an email at uh, 
uh, Joe at kickmailer.com. All right, and we'll asked some to, emails. <laughs> yes, yeah, good. And asked to, to, to be admitted to the closed beta. So, um, well, so it does some really cool stuff. We should explain. So the Kickstarter right now is at some point, and I've had some communication with them because they're great. People at Kickstarter are awesome. This they is answer their mail. They're it's fantastic. I know. Before I started, I sent three questions, and I got incredibly good responses yep. to them. They're great throughout. Some Kickstarter employees were like the first people backing my campaign oh, because they like to do that. Like, that's like super to, cool. They yeah. like to come in when some, you know to show their support for people supporting what they're doing. So it's a weirdly lovely organization because most companies, they just put out the number that they, uh, their 2013 stats just came out, and I want to say it was, was it $380, $480 million pledged? I've lost track even. <sighs> Put Crazy. the link in the notes, but like, yep. so they're becoming huge. They only take five percent of that, and they are don't seem to be greedy. No. They seem to like the scale that's going on. So that said, they will improve this, and I've already sent and gotten some very nice response about enormous amount of advice about the backup part. But um, when you get to this, the end of the Kickstarter campaign, you can go to the site and you can send a survey. And a survey is a questionnaire. It goes out an email, and it's available to people's account. The survey is then processed into essentially comma delimited. Tab, you know, yeah. SC, SC, bunch SC, of spreadsheets, comma separated values, right? And they, there's no way you can't do programmatically. You have to. I wrote software that took and it downloads one per reward level. Yeah. And your surveys are labeled if you have multiple choice questions in the surveys. Like I said, did you order a T-shirt? Yes, no. The column title is choice. It's not. T-shirt. So there are all these things that they are assuring me they're working on, and we all know. And this is like the this is the only part of the entire process that's difficult. This I is my say. twenty-five megabyte spreadsheet. Oh my goodness! Of, of right. all my fulfillment crap oh, and Lordy. automatically pulled in and cleaned and ingested and fulfillment data formatted yes. for Amazon and fulfill right and everything else. Oh my god, yeah, but it's, it's terrible. But so yeah, so you get basically a bunch of spreadsheets. Well, not even spreadsheets. They're, they're CSV files. So there's no. It's, they're just pure data. Yeah. And when everybody anybody updates their information. That spreadsheet updates. You have to download it again, and then parse the response date that's in it in the field. So, I, I'm happy. I built software that did this. I offered to give Kickstarter my code. It's like here's some PHP yeah. code that will ingest and update database tables and whatever. But this is the part I did not expect to be the friction part. And so clearly, so here's at least one. Yeah, thing and I just found it great. More. So I say, I, here's my robot turtles list, which is I can import any time from Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And I want to say I want to send this to people at you know these two reward tiers, the twenty nine and, and forty dollar one. I want to only send it to people oh, with wonderful. the U.S. mailing address, mm-hmm. or only people who haven't provided their mailing address, um, and don't send it to people who received the last email. So right. I use this this. That sort wonderful. of thing. So I can say, okay, if you haven't, if you're in the U.S. and I don't have your email address, blah. If you're in the U.S. and I didn't send you the previous thing and you ordered a copy, blah. If none of the above, then I'm going to send you, you blah. You don't bug them because a survey you can only send out once. You can re- you can't revise it. Yeah. So if you make a mistake, which I did, I left something oh, out no. in my survey, and there's no template for the survey, so you have to make each one of them individually hand tooled at Kickstarter. Yeah. And I had a, a sheet that I was using, and I made a mistake. So I did like probably 14 hours of follow-up because I left off one question. But once the survey goes out, you can only either email people based on the response to the survey because you get their email as part of it. You get their Kickstarter registered email and whatever email they give you if you ask for it. Uh, And uh, you can send backer-only updates, but they go to everybody. Everybody. And I drove some people crazy with it already. And I said, look, I've now set up a separate opt-in mailing list 
for people who want like very discreet updates about book progress, I'm like, I'm not going to send anything to the backer list except ebooks shipped or you know when a reward ships, I'll send it. The incremental stuff is going somewhere else, but this is beautiful. So this actually lets me not only that, but it lets me manage all the name, address, all that in this as well. So mm-hmm. I could set, give people a link and say, just go here and update your stuff, or hey, added a question, go fill out the answer. That's great. I, I still nag the hell out of my backers just because um, Joe has been building out this functionality. Not all of it was there at the yes, time. Yes, um, but I w- <laughs> if it was in the state it was now, I wouldn't have had to nag them nearly as but much. Lesser, lesser. This is this um, uh, percentage thing, right? It's probably ninety percent of the people gave you their address or whatever you needed within like a day or two and then another 5% probably within a week and then another 4% in like two weeks. And then so how, but no, then I still get this trick of like, like two people, 700 people you haven't heard from probably. Right. Or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly. funny. And people are like, you're like, you gave me your money. I want to give you the thing. Please let me ship this? it to you. Yeah. That's right. It's funny too. That's when great. I, when I had people fill out the survey, I also had them fill out um, an, a phone number and secondary email. And I've had to use yes. those for a couple of folks in the, oh, hey, you know, the mail didn't arrive. How can I get this to you? It's amazing. Well, look, let's let's go look Let's at the 2D the, cutter. You can show the it. Let's, laser. We'll walk through there uh, as the, uh, All right. the visual. T- this is the audio tour of Dan's new house and his <laughs> operations here. And the basement. It's very exciting. It's a very exciting basement. Basements are incredibly useful for startup businesses. Yeah, so you so, true. so you started a business by accident here. You meant to do a modest project while you were writing a book. Instead, you did an enormous project <laughs> and took over your life. Now, and now you have a book. I'm to trying finish. to wrap up. Oh, I forgot to mention um, the the other cool thing about the uh, 3D version. The goal is to get gems. Yeah, the 3D version comes with actual semi-precious gemstones. Ooh. Twenty-five. Real, honest to goodness, semi precious gems. Holy cow! Kids get to collect as they win, or I should say, they're grown ups because the the grown up version, uh, the laser version, is not child safe. Oh, I see. Choking hazards. It's so no for kids. Okay. But. But the, so the uh, so those those are already tumbled. You have to do more work with them. Or yeah, those pre tumbled. The pre tumbles. You just have to package them. That's a hand operation. Yeah, you got to do seventy two. That's me of and those. my kids <laughs> sitting around the table, Counting. packaging them up. <laughs> child labor is a great thing. Dan and I went on to do some really fun cutting with his 2D laser, and I have a few blocks with my kids' and wife's initials on them to show for it. Thanks to Dan for inviting me into his workshop and talking about everything that went into making this a really great project and really fulfilling for him, even as he's finishing fulfillment of it. He still has a few copies of the game left to purchase, so you can go to robotturtles.com, no dashes or spaces, and order your copy now. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me over. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. 
This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.